great. It would be great if the conversations you're having resulted in a sale. Absolutely. But like where you are in your business right now is you need to put the reps in to have conversations, to understand what people are dealing with so that you can pivot your conversations for the next sales conversation. Okay, Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I think I've finally gotten used to this live streaming process. You're, I think, the third or fourth live stream we've done, multi-stream. We're on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitch, and I think oh. Twitter as well. So thank you for joining us. I didn't know you could even go live on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know that either. It's, I think it's new. It's on beta. So we got applied. Uh, we applied and got in. I'm not sure if it's actually there yet, but uh, hopefully it is. If it isn't, we're on LinkedIn at least, and I've been really enjoying this whole going live. What would you say is the difference between going live and recording it and then posting it? I think the idea is that when you're recording, you have this idea of doing a take. So you're like, I'll yeah. try this, I'll try this. Whereas live, you're not, you, you can't pre-script. So I feel like you're, it's like uh, in drama class and you do a, a completely, the words are coming improv. to me, but improv, right? It's like yeah. you're improving completely. And I think it's a completely different skill set than like recording yourself. I actually find it hard to rec- pre-record myself. I don't know how you do I find Same. that. Same. Yeah. I try and do a one-take wonder. But actually, the few videos I've had on um, uh, LinkedIn or any socials has been always one-takes. Because it's, it's so hard, right? The process of like it's editing and reanimating yourself and trying to make yourself look a certain way. You can get so self-critical. Yeah, 100%. I'm the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of this, yeah, we want to bring you on here to talk about a few things you're up to. You're an Ontario native, but uh, you came back from the Valley after a little stint in uh, British Columbia. So I want to dive a little bit more into the work you've done in both ecosystems in, in the US and Canada in terms of startups and what you see are, are the differences and challenges, especially uh, during the post-COVID environment. Yeah, that's a great question. The opportunity they had to work with the VC firm down in California was amazing. And what was interesting was it was remote, specifically that VC organization is very focused on providing opportunities for companies who are not necessarily in Silicon Valley. So highly focused on that. And and so even though it's based in California, they had so many companies that were around the US and they also work in Africa. And it was great. So I don't know. I think this whole remote work situation, I've always done it. I ran my first business when I was 19. So I've never really gone into the office. I did like a short stint of office work for nine months. And I was like, that's it. Can't do it. So I think I've just been born and bred for a remote. And I think COVID has just accelerated that for other people. Not necessarily me. Awesome. So in, in terms of being involved in the business early on and what that led you to, you also are a uh, filmographer. You produce films, you're a director, sorry. And you recently just produced a short film? Yes. So as of March 31st, so what is this, a week? So seven days, I will have finished my first short documentary. And it's been, I guess it could be called a startup in and of itself. It's been four years in the making and it was definitely not planning on taking that long. I thought it would be like a short three month project. And four years later, we're still here. And I've done a lot of challenging things in the work I've done and projects I've taken on. But I would say actually finishing this documentary is probably one of the grittiest things I've done. 
So or what we've done. <clears throat> always find parallels between this, right? Like building artistic projects and startups. Both both founders and artists consider what they build to be art in some certain ways. Mm-hmm. So talking about when it comes to developing like a, a, a film like this. Can you walk us through the process of what's your mindset? Did it start with uh, a concept first or did you like like figure out like logistics planning of how am I going to get this made and then work backwards? No, I w- to be honest, you live and learn. I wish I'd started with some logistics planning. That would have been, that would have made a lot of the post work a lot easier. But my approach in life up to this point has always been, if I want to do it, I'll figure it out. So that approach led me to doing a bike tour from Windsor to Ottawa, 1,100 kilometers without training to raise awareness around sex trafficking. Um, so I had the same approach to doing the documentary. It was, I, I had actually wanted to do film and journalism growing up. And, and so that was always something I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. And, and then a couple of years ago, 2018, one of my closest friends had a story I felt should be told. And... I said, this will be a great project. I'll learn how to do a film. This will be great. And so I just jumped in and I had never made a film before. I had never gone to school for it. I had for a short while a business doing wedding videography. So the videography side of things wasn't completely new to me, but definitely not an extensive amount of experience. And I just jumped in and, and learned. And it, it is very parallel to running a startup. It's like, you don't, you, you just, this needs to get created or get done. You just jump in and start your startup. And my experience in doing the, the film has been very much the same. Like I've spent, I've spent the last year and a half trying to figure out the right narrative, which goes into storytelling, which is also very related to startups. But I've spent the last year and a half reiterating and pivoting the storyline over and over and over again, uh, which is hundreds of hours of editing. Because it just never resonated in the way I wanted it to resonate. So I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that this last edit is the edit I'm good with. (laughs) Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the film? What is it about? What inspired you uh, to get behind it? Yeah. So the film um, follows the story of a woman who left a domestic violence situation. So the focus is obviously to raise awareness around domestic violence. So she was actually a former Miss Canada pageant queen and was in university and was also experiencing a really abusive domestic violent relationship. But what's unique about the film is I wanted to focus on what it takes to rebuild your life after leaving. And this is a piece of the conversation that's often not told. A lot of films and a lot of story and a lot of narrative lead up to when the person leaves, which is important. And that's a really important piece and it should never be overlooked. But what I wanted to explore was, okay, great, you leave. And then what does your life look like? And that's a conversation and a question a lot of people who are in the same situation consider. It's how do I, how do I build my life after leaving? And so uh, the subject's actually a really close friend of mine. And, and so she left when she had an eight-month-old and she was eight months pregnant. And so it follows her journey in rebuilding her life, learning how to love again, trust again, and rebuild a life that she's really proud, proud of. Yeah. 
That, yeah, that sounds emotionally terminalist kind of environment where you really get you know, sucked into the emotions and feelings of, of this individual. In terms of the logistics, right? Like you have, you got this great story, you got this great person who can share, you can add to it in, in terms of getting it done. And I, th- I feel like this is where a lot of creatives get held up on. It's a great, I have this great concept, but how do I get it financed? How do I get the right team? How do I f- figure out what I don't even know I need to know? You, you get caught up in the logistics of a project. And then it, it, dreams die there. So how'd you get past those hurdles? A lot of crying. <laughs> like tr- 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 transparently. And I feel like this is not talked about often enough. And so I do make a point to address it whenever people ask me is a lot of crying, a lot of I don't know what I'm doing, and a lot of frustration. And then tactically, what was interesting was I actually started the project with an, another good friend of mine who had gone to school for filmmaking. So she had experience, she had made short films before and it's like, I want to do this. I have some experience, but I'll leverage off of her knowledge, which was great for the initial piece. And then she couldn't continue. And I was left with this project <laughs> that I had, we had captured most of the footage and most of the interview, but I was left with the editing part, which now that I've done it, I think editing is one of the most challenging aspects of filmmaking. Like you can, you, you can capture gorgeous visual footage, but if your ability to edit and tell a, a story is not great, the film won't be emotionally connected. Whereas you can have not so great footage, but if you can tell a really great story, your film will connect with people. So I was left with a whole bunch of footage and I was just like, I've never edited it. I've never, I don't know, like how am I supposed to do this? Which is why probably I actually had to do numerous edits like over and over again. And, and I tried to outsource actually. I was like, okay, great. There, there have to be experts in being able to edit better than I can. And I tried, I I like contacted and talked to so many and it just never landed in a way that I felt they could deliver on the edit better than I could for this experience. And so I, <laughs> it was like this, okay, I'll go do it. And I'll, I would edit it for a bit. And then I was like, I'm not happy. This is not working. And then I'd go like, okay, I'll outsource. I'd go talk to more people. And I was like, no, that's not working. And I was like, yes, I'll edit it again. So this has been like a year and a half of like this tugging, you know, back and forth of it. I don't know if that answered your question, but logistically, that's how it's happened. And I personally, because I'm definitely, one of my goals is to create a production studio. So, because I think filmmaking and story, storytelling is one of the most impactful ways to create change in the world. And, and so I tend to gravitate more towards the production side of things. So how you do distribution, how you do marketing. That's all the things I love and have done for a very long time. So I tend to gravitate towards that stuff. So it's actually been a challenge for me and a good challenge to stay focused on the actual filmmaking side of it because all I want to do is is dig into the marketing and distribution and all that side. And I say, like, I can't. Like the film, the film has to be finished first. So that's where we're at. Uh, so... Um... <clears throat> Jumping, uh, diving deeper into that, I've, I've talked to a few filmmakers. Like part of the reason we have uh, this podcast is we work with a cinematographer, one of my friends, who helped devise not just the concept of the show, but behind the scenes how to get it going. So uh, back in the day, we had when we first started this, it was in person set, you know, pre-COVID, and the, setting up that environment, getting the equipment together, and uh, sourcing 
all, all the right talent you need to like get it processed and produced after. Uh, that was like one of the, uh, the key points. And the first few episodes, we didn't even really care much about the content. We were more focused on how do we keep the logistics going so we can keep creating more of these. Because the, the idea was if we can keep creating more and make it easier to create, then we can launch more projects and become better at the craft. Uh, do you feel the same uh, with what you're doing? Do you feel like do you want to be launching more short films or any artistic projects like this? Or it's, it was like more of a one-off challenge for yourself to test your capability? That is a really interesting approach because usually I've heard it the other way around. Make sure your content's really good because then when your content's really good at the very beginning, you... So usually it's flipped. But I, I, I like your... I like that approach and then... It is something I resonate quite a bit with. I was actually just talking with one of my clients yesterday and I, we were talking about just having to put the reps in and not being focused on the outcome. And it was a sales conversation. So I, I said, great, it would be great if the conversations you're having resulted in a sale. Absolutely. But like where you are in your business right now is you need to put the reps in to have conversations, to understand what people are dealing with so that you can pivot your conversations for the next sales conversation and I do think it's the same in in filmmaking and now that you live and learn and I was I I, two days ago I was walking walking back up start my edit again and I was like man I don't know if I would have done this project if I had known how frustrating it would have been and but now that I know there are certain things I would put into place and a hundred percent I want to create a production studio that tells people stories. And I think specifically where I think there's a really great um, opportunity is non-for-profits and creating short films for their fundraising. One thing that I, I connected or while I was in the middle of this process was, and it's something a lot of creatives deal with is like, I created this project. Now what do I do with it? Like, cool, move on. And for me, that seemed like it was selling short the project because it was like, you put so much effort in and then it just essentially dies. I was like, that seems like a waste. And so I've been mulling over it for a while. And I said, okay, if I were to do this again, which I would like to, but more so I would be the production side of things and I would do all of that and I would get people to do the actual filmmaking side. I said, if I were to do it again, because what would have been ideal is if I had partnered with an organization that worked with women who left. And, and so they needed the, so what we could have done is created this film. And then this film is their tool for fundraising because I feel like people, fundraising is a lot more easy. It's a lot easier to do when it evokes emotion, like across the board and anything. And so that is actually one of the things I'd like to do moving forward is find non-for-profit organizations that create amazing results in the world and an amazing impact and create short films that they can use for their fundraising um, endeavors. Awesome. Yeah. So diving into that capability, I, I talk about this, uh, this idea by Naval Ravikant, uh, one of the co-founders of AngelList. His tweets, yeah, his tweet storm really struck a, a, a nerve in me and one of these ideas is that the internet rewards those who create code, who add to the internet, and those who create media, which is the, the wetware, what the internet uses, right? If you think about it, all these tools, from social media tools to websites, it accesses media for you. And I think what's going on now is that the appetite for media has grown exponentially. 
with the explosion of code and, and with all the users coming out. 4.8 billion uh, users of the internet and more growing each month coming into this environment. The, I think it was Reed Hastings from uh, Netflix who said the TAM, the total addressable market for content is now infinite because you're not no longer creating content for people. You're actually creating content for algorithms, which will then deliver to the people. We're entering an environment of programmatic media. So now almost everything from the moment you turn on Netflix to come on, turn, go on your internet browser to LinkedIn, an algorithm is determining what you see, mm. right? So all those content has to source itself to the algorithms who can then determine who sees it. And we're leaving an environment where you're like the early internet where you're trying to chase millions of views to now you're trying to get to the right people. If you can form tribes who really care authentically care about you. You only need, if you have a thousand, if you had a thousand people, what, paying $9.99 a month to you, that's a hundred thousand dollars. So it's, if you can collect that tribe of close-knit people who really care or passionate about either your art or what you're creating or your cause or what you stand behind, you can more than ever become independent through the internet. So I think this is what the metaverse really means. It's a moment mm. of time where we can abstract more value from digital tools and our digital environments than our physical environments. And that's, that time is coming sooner and sooner for more people. It is. It's exciting and it makes me nervous at the same time when I think mm. about it. Okay. Let's unpack that. What about that stands out to you? Because I think we've heard so much negativity. The moment Facebook turned into meta, oh, giant corpses are turning us into Ready Player One kind of environment if you ever watched the movie. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it was interesting. I used to run an internship and I would train people on sales and marketing. And there's a film that came out a couple years ago and it was called The Great Hack. And it was about Cambridge Analytica. And I recommend it to everyone. And I don't agree with the premise of the film. Because they're all like, it's all evil. Not, not I, I, I'm boiling it down too simply. But it was, I didn't agree with the premise. But I told everybody I, I ran the internship with, I was like, watch it from a marketing perspective. Because what the film shows you is the ability to change people's mind through marketing and through these tools. And some people choose to use it for not great purposes. But you can also like if you are if you're a startup wanting to create change in the world, or if you are a non for profit, who makes significant differences in the world, you can use the same premise, like it's it, the psychology is the same how you use it is different. And yeah, that's why I'm excited about it. And it's also a little nerve wracking, right? Because I, I read a book recently, I forget what it was, but it was like, started questioning, oh, it was this neuroscientist, I forget his name. And he was talking about the need for self-development and self-reflection. And I've been in the self-development world since I started my business. So it's been a very long time. In the last two years, I've started questioning, do I need to be as self-reflective as I am? And I was like, people have lived for hundreds of years without as much self-reflection as I've probably done in the last 10. Is this needed? Does this actually move the conversation forward? And so I got a little bit jaded around the whole self-development, self-reflective process. And so he said something in this podcast interview that I was like, that's interesting. He said, hundreds of years ago, <clears throat> if you had the opportunity to go sit on a mountain and become more self-reflective, <clears throat> that was great. That was great. It wasn't needed though. Because nowadays there are companies who their entire intention is to know you better than you know yourself. And so if you haven't taken the time to know yourself, then these other companies 
are going to program you in ways that you may not necessarily know. And I was like, that's interesting. So it made me stop and think about it because it was a question I'd been considering quite often. And yeah, so I think we're, we're in a really exciting time and also a little bit of a nerve wracking time as well, depending on how things are used. Oh. Oh, sorry. I said, I love that you brought that up about knowing ourselves so much. I think you're absolutely right about that. Now is better, is a time where we need more self-reflection, especially as uh, the internet kind of progresses. But I, I always look to like how these tools can be used to help. Think about how much information is being co- collected from you or scraped from you by all the apps you use and the internet in general. And it always seems so exploitative because it doesn't seem transparent. Everyone seems like to hide it from you, be like, oh, don't worry about what we're taking from you because we don't want you to be scared. But I'm like, if we can actually flip it in reverse, and if we can, if these, if, if these systems can mine information for us and put it collect it and, and we can collect it together in a digital vault, and it, we can look into what they call like the seething mirror, where you can actually see your soul, right? Like you can see parts of yourself what you don't like, what's actually been, been accessible by everyone else is now becoming visible to you. So it's like, what can a tool like that do? So talking about Web 3.0 tech, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the internet, is his, he's released some new code that's really inspiring. He's it, calling it a solid network. And what it is that it's a framework for the internet where the individual user, when you log into anything, all the data connected actually comes to the user. And then the system like ping you, so, hey, can we access this? So it's, there's a digital clone of you now going everywhere on the internet. And, and any information, any tool that collects information also stores a, a, a clone copy of it into this vault, digital vault. And at any time you can choose who accesses it, just like your Google password, what Google does for you, but it's natively built for individuals on the internet. And what I like about this is like, you ultimately get control over who collects your data and what they have access to, because they, by collecting it, they have to clone it onto you. And then who continues you have access to that. But by having access to that first-person data, you can technically then have like bots, your own bots and things working on you, working on that data for you, that's working to help in a certain way. So I think, I think the real idea is like how do you change the infrastructure so it's more user-centric than it is corporate-centric? So it's a less exploitative, exploitative uh, resource, right? And the moment we do that, it becomes more collaborative. So people are less scared of what goes up. Rather than do that, they actively put all the information there. Just like we actively go to the bank and put our money there, not under a mattress, we'll actually put a store a data there instead of you know keeping it off the internet. And it'll actually make internet tools more valuable. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a framework style thinking. I think a lot of companies are getting behind it. Mostly because Tim Berners-Lee, you know, has a legendary uh, status. He's the one who built the original code for HTTP and uh, how the internet currently works. So people are taking that seriously. So I hope the idea kind of takes off because I would so much. I would like that kind of infrastructure a lot better. Where like I ultimately own the data and I ultimately determine who can see it, but also I can actually deploy my own machines and, and and bots and things on top of my own data to get insights about. Me. So how cool would that be? Where like you have actual digital assistants that know you inside out and giving you insights, saying, "Hey, you haven't been sleeping enough. You haven't been drinking enough water. Come on, you got this thing coming up. You got a, your birthday coming up in three three months. You got to look good." And using things you care about to influence you in, in, in ways you want to be. It is interesting that you say that. So I'm one of six kids and my brother runs his own business as well. And uh, and so uh, he, I stayed with him in Vancouver over the summer and his sleep was awful. But it was like very, 
common things that you could change. But he would just like complain about his sleep. And he's a very self-aware person as well. He, like, he would complain about his sleep, but then he would drink a liter, two liters of iced tea and eat chocolate before he goes to bed. Like, we, we know what your problem is. It doesn't take a scientist. Anyways, but he just like never changed his behavior. I don't know, whatever. And, and then he ordered the aura ring. And I was like, Michael, why are you ordering the aura ring? He's like, I think it will help me with my sleep. I was like, but we know what your problem is. Like, you don't need a $400 ring to diagnose your problem. He's like, no, I, I, I want the stats. Like, I work better in competition. And I was like, whatever. And so he got the aura ring. And it was so funny because for him, that's what he needed. It was like seeing the numbers and seeing the performance percentage or whatever it is was the motivator that he needed to start changing his habits. And he knew what habits to change. But until he saw those numbers, like reflected back in some sort of thing, performance, mm-hmm. he was like, I'm not going to change. I said, whatever works for you. But <laughs> it was so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, I, this is what I use. It's a boop. It, yeah. It's a strap that you keep on 24 hours. Even the battery charger goes on top of this. Wow. So you, you're incentivized not to take it off and it collects all this data. And what I like about this versus other trackers, you pay for the device or the hardware and the software is just mining you for information and sending it mm. to Google HQ and Amazon. But this one, it's more like a gym membership. So you, you don't pay for the hardware. You're actually paying for the software. So the hardware collects the data. You co-own it. You can print it out at any time. You can extract it. But there's algorithms working on top of it to give you insights on top of the data. And then every week, there's weekly reports, there's monthly reports. Every year, it shows you how you've grown. It helps you build communal structures around the type of way uh, you should be healthy. And what I like about it the most, it measures sleep. And exactly what your brother went through, the moment you have data, the moment you can measure something, you can, so just like we can, that can be deployed in health data. Now, how can that help our motivations? How can I help our uh, attain our goals better? How can I help that help with our relationships? So I think this is like where the concept of software is eating the world uh, is like ultimately moving towards, right? It's, yeah, everything is being turned into software, aka everything can be turned into data. But who ultimately owns the data, and how can I benefit from my from owning my own data? Because the moment we can solve for that, people get comfortable with providing data. You know? Yeah, it's interesting because I. I I have a friend who works as a director of IT in a, in a big company and uh, we were talking about it and he's like, are you comfortable sharing your information? And I was like, most of the time, he's like, who would you not trust your information with? And I was just like, quite frankly, I actually don't like using a lot of apps on my phone for tracking stuff. That's just, for me, I don't like it. And he's, he goes, of all the companies I trust, it would be Apple. He's, Apple's proven to whatever. And I was just like, still don't, still don't buy it. But Something occurred to me as you were talking that I hadn't thought about in a way that I think the the data and the tracking reduces some of the need to be as self-aware, right? Like, I think you probably could get to the same point as you, you know, could with or without something with a lot more intention and effort on the discovering yourself. But number one, you're not prone to that. And number two, you don't have the time. I think these tools can increase and decrease the gap between maybe what you're not aware of and what your triggers are. And it was interesting, even actually I had a close friend quit smoking after 16 years and she's tried multiple times, like all the time. And she finally found this quit smoking app that was her lifeline and they've created it in such an amazing way that 
it supported her and like they knew when she'd be triggered to like smoke and they knew what they need she needed to hear and all they knew that she needed to feel community and all these things and they programmed it in a way that really supported her to be able to fully quit smoking which was amazing yeah that's definitely awesome speaking of um you know so talking about all these different things about technology and how it's transforming i want to tie this back to some of the work you've done with expert dojo and and the both the u.s and canadian ecosystems what kind of technologies have you worked with what kind of what kind of companies and did it fuel any of your other passions with your your the movies you were making and tutorial debuts um yeah, so I had, I had the great experience to be able to work with that VC accelerator for a short period in the States. And what was amazing was I've had a lot of experience in sales and marketing, just generally. And I've always been really passionate around healthcare. And so I've actually considered multiple times going back to school for healthcare. But it never resonated with me in a way that I actually did it because I knew I didn't want to become a healthcare practitioner. That seemed as amazing as the work that they do, it seemed limited for me because I wanted to be able to run a business and everything like that. So I was like, going back to school, because I, I considered it from the time I was like 24 to 30. So it was like six years of seriously considering going back to school for some sort of medical related degree. And so then the opportunity came up, came up to work with Expert Dojo's Healthcare Accelerator. And it was such a gift. It truly was because I was able to work and experience the nuances of a healthcare startup. Like startups, there's some general things. And then in healthcare, there's a lot of nuances related to it, even like your go-to-market strategy and all that stuff that's different than I would say a lot of other um, startups. And so it was a great way for me to get into the healthcare world from a business perspective. And I loved it. And so that's actually what fueled my interest to start pivoting from marketing and sales in general and transition to more of a niche focus on healthcare related startups. And so there's some interesting, interesting healthcare startups specifically in the work that they're doing that I find fascinating. I definitely want to dig more into software as a therapeutic is really interesting to me. And so how can you create software that creates the same end result without necessarily having to use medication? One of the companies that was in the accelerator was this company that was a software and it was helping with um, diabetes. So instead of having to do, instead of having to take medication, you would do this digital therapeutic, which was fascinating to me. And, and so that's something I definitely am really interested in is like, how do you use software to actually create like a tangible physical health result? And I would say that's probably one of the most interesting things for me in this space at the moment is the digital therapeutics. Digital therapeutics. Yeah. There's such a wide category that's just suddenly emerging. So med tech is being broken down into all these different uh, subcategories now because of how wide that field is. And so in, in terms of like therapeutic, part of it is because sensors are becoming so common and cheap and, and people are getting used to it. But what kind of, where can we go with this? Where can, where does the ideal future with digital therapeutics take us? Yeah, to be honest, I, it's exciting and and nerve-wracking for me, but like much like the rest of my journey, I just decided to jump in. So I don't actually know too much about the field, and it's something I'm excited to become an expert in. And 
But why it excites me is for a number of different reasons. I think it'll allow for access to healthcare for people who not, would not have the ability for that access, either in their ability to go to a hospital or their ability to be seen. So I think it'll help bridge the gap of inequality of healthcare. And and so I was doing some, I went on vacation in Miami, to Miami in February, and I downloaded a whole bunch of research articles on the blockchain related to healthcare. And I was talking to my sister, she's like, but you're going on vacation. I was like, this is what I like to read on vacation. This is my jam. She's like, you do, you. And, and so one of the articles I was reading was about this, the opportunity for digital therapeutics related to cancer specifically in related to depression specifically in cancer patients which was really interesting and a personal note my sister was diagnosed with cancer three years ago and she's like one of the most resilient people I've ever met and and she is not someone I would call very easily prone to depression but with everything you go through in cancer and everything like that she's definitely had her moments and so it was interesting I was reading this research article on they were they were they were doing clinical studies on this digital therapeutic to help cancer patients who were going through chemo related to depression induced by that treatment and and it made me really excited for the future on what's possible because I think a lot of people suffer either by themselves or they don't have access to support and hopefully as as the field becomes more mainstream hopefully they'll be able to support people um, that don't have that ability yeah Cool. So tying that all in into the trajectory, right? Like you're working on producing art, you're aspiring to be more VC-minded and invest in in companies or provide support for them, and potentially with the concept of launching your own. And tying that all in, where does the skill sets come from that you feel like you're... Where do you allocate your time and personal development? Knowing there's a future you're you're trying trying to move towards, where do you allocate your time now on developing yourself? That's a very good question. Uh, up to this point, I've been like, I can handle everything. We'll just throw more on the plate. And now I'm very aware I can't do everything I want to do. Or, and I used to do a lot of coaching. So I used to coach programs where people would come in with an idea of a project that they wanted to do that would create an impact in the community. And it was a three-month program. And in that three-month program, they created this project. And so I did a lot of coaching with people who were in that program. And I often said, Beyonce and you have the same amount of time. And the reason why I was hesitating is I know there's some backlash on this, which is, I think, a mainstream. But where that's empowering for me is, okay, I can create all the things I want to create. I need to do it either in a strategic way. I need to learn how to delegate. I need to learn how to lead in a way that doesn't require more time on my end. And I think that is a skill set, right? Because I think if I try to do everything and be involved in everything, I there's a limit to what I can do. But if I can develop the skill set to have a vision and then empower people to lead and implement that vision, what I desire to create an impact in the world still can occur, but it doesn't require additional time on my end. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently and looking at how I spend my time and and what's important to me and how I can make that all happen. And 
yeah, that's what I've been mulling over. That's awesome. Dominica, I think it's a perfect way to end this. Where can people find more information about you, your short film, and everything else you're up to? Uh, so the easiest one right now is probably my LinkedIn um, profile. The short film page will be releasing probably in the next two weeks. And then I'm revamping my marketing business website. So hopefully by the end of April, speaking of delegation, hopefully by the end of April, that's up. So until all those kind of get finalized the way I want, the LinkedIn page is probably the easiest way. But definitely end of April, we'll have a little bit more outfacing ways to interact and engage. Amazing. Perfect. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, that come out. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. It was amazing. Thanks so much. Disrupt, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Ravi Ravindran and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Disrupt content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.